Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on the show, we're talking about an appeals court ruling attacking free speech rights in regard to BDS, an important court case in Cuba and the deceptive U.S. spin on it, and recent U.S. legislation aimed at attacking China over alleged Uyghur abuse that is really an attack on the Uyghur people. And later on in the show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on, Y'all, the hits just keep on coming with these January 6th hearings. If you didn't watch, Trump's former White House aide, Cassidy Hutchinson, testified before the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection and revealed some pretty damning details, such as... Weapons were confiscated at the rally before the march to the Capitol on January 6th, and Trump knew this because he was told. Now, if you've done any kind of demonstrations in Washington, D.C., you know that you cannot bring weapons of any kind or anything that could be used as a weapon to the demonstration. We veteran organizers and movement people prepare for this, making sure we don't have our signs on metal poles and that we use uh, sticks that don't have pointed ends or, you know, carry anything like that that can be construed as a weapon. But these folks... Trump's MAGA folks had knives, spears, flagpoles that they later used as spears, bear spray, body armor, shields, and yes, guns. The audio of police transmissions during that morning was played that identified people carrying firearms near the ellipse that morning. Quote, three men walking down the street in fatigues carrying AR-15s at 14th and Independence, a voice said in one transmission, white male, stock of an AR-15, someone is heard in another recording, green fatigues, Glock-style pistols in their waistband, elevated threat in the trees, American flag face mask, weapon on the right side hip, another transmission said. But Trump was unconcerned about the armed people and was apparently more unhappy that the ellipse wasn't full of people after he was told that people wouldn't go through the metal detectors because they were armed and would have those weapons confiscated. Trump's response was to demand that the metal detectors be taken down so that those armed and angry people could march on to the Capitol. According to Hutchinson, Trump said, quote, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here, end quote. Then the plan to have Trump go to the Capitol himself, where the election was to be certified that day and where he really had no reason to be, was revealed to have been known by several people in Trump's camp. The White House's own National Security Council chat log was displayed, showing what appears to be growing concern over this plan still being pushed. Quote, moguls going to the Capitol. Mogul is the Secret Service code name for uh, President Trump. They are clearing a route now. That was a message sent to the NSC chat log at 1229 p.m. on January 6th. 
at 1232, uh, the next message read, Mill Aid has confirmed that he wants to walk. They are begging him to reconsider. Then at 1247, a seemingly incredulous response is posted. So this is happening. She also said she heard a secondhand account of how Trump was so enraged at his Secret Service detail for not driving him to the Capitol on that day that he lunged to the front of his presidential limo and tried to turn the wheel, then attacked the driver. Now, because this was what Hutchinson said, she heard others say how true this is, given little short man in his tiny hand stature. Who knows? And to be fair, Fox News is reporting that two Secret Service agents, one of them apparently the driver, are prepared to testify that this did not happen. So maybe all of that is just entertaining hearsay. But what Hutchinson did witness herself was the exchange between White House counsel Pat Cipollone and Mark Meadows after they discussed with Trump the chance to hang Mike Pence and the escalating violence on the Capitol grounds and in the building. She said, I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, Mark, we need to do something more. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. Meadows said, you heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. And then Cipollone responded by saying, this is effing crazy. We need to be doing something more. Mark, something needs to be done or people are going to die and the blood's going to be on your effing hands, Cipollone told Meadows. This is getting out of control. But it wasn't out of control as much as it was exactly what was planned all along. Trump supporters, as misguided and ill-informed as they may have been, really believed the 2020 election was stolen. They really believed that democracy had failed them. They really believed that their rights as citizens were criminally denied, ballots stolen, illegal ballots counted, and their votes invalidated by Biden and the Democrats and those two black women in Atlanta. And they believed that they had no choice but to take by force what they believed was stolen from them. And here's the sticking point. Exposing the plot to unleash this chaos, who knew when they knew and what they did in response, is important. But we don't want to defend the institutions that these people wanted to attack in the process because even though their reasons for their actions are illegitimate, their primary argument that the system is rigged and does not serve the interest of the people, that argument is valid. The irony here is that that's actually been the reality for the rest of us in this country all along, and it always has been. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik here in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And let's continue talking about how this system is not designed for the people. I'm happy to be joined for this conversation by Miko Pelet, human rights activist and author of The General Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine and Injustice, the Story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. Miko, thanks so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. 
really glad that you are here to talk about yet another uh, attack on the rights of the people in this country, this time uh, an attack on free speech rights in regard to uh, supporting the BDS movement. Um, It's interesting that the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals just reversed its own 2021 decision and ruled on June 22nd that boycotts of Israel are not protected by the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Now, the Supreme Court could hear this case, but if they choose not to hear it, the only thing that has to happen for this decision to stand, literally, is for the Supreme Court to say, we're not going to hear this case. So, Mika, what does this uh, uh, Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling mean in the struggle uh, of, to support BDS movements here in the U.S. and in the struggle for Palestinian solidarity uh, as well? Yeah, well, that's uh, this is this is an important question, and it comes right uh, in the heat, right after the uh, decision about uh, Roe versus Wade. And I think, um, you know, the, these decisions, these type of decisions, have been have been, you know, it's a long time in coming. I mean, the the the, the other side, the Republicans, the conservatives, have been have been building, building, and building and planning. Uh, so that these kinds of decisions are going to be made by the courts. I think I think what's um, what's important to realize here. I don't know if anybody had noticed this, but in uh, January of 2019, the first uh, bill out of the Senate, S1, was a bill called "Strengthening America's Security in the Middle East," and basically it was, you know, giving more money and more aid and uh, collaboration with Israel. And um, the Republicans added. A piece to this legislation, which would um, basically uh, criminalize a call for boycott against Israel. And there was one speech in the Senate that caught my attention. That was a speech of uh, Chris Van Hollen, the junior senator from Maryland, where he says he opposes boycotting of Israel and he supports giving Israel all its everything it needs and more and so on and so on and so on. But he says. And this is probably one of the most important speeches given by any official in the United States on this issue. He says, let me be equally clear on this point. I will seriously defend the constitutional right of any American citizen to express his or her views in such a peaceful way that they choose. He said, we cannot tell Americans that they cannot boycott. It is unconstitutional. And this is a, this is a senator who is a Zionist through and through, supports Israel through and through. And he was very angry at the Republicans because this bill had bipartisan support. It was to be a smooth, you know, passed very smoothly. It did pass, but there was it was not 100 percent bipartisan support. And there were senators like himself that couldn't vote for it. I think this is very, very important because it shows us that there's a risk here between, um, you know, the, the Trump type and the, and the evangelical type who want to reverse Roe, who want 100% to delegitimize any criticism of Israel and so on. And then the more moderate who say, wait a minute, we need to draw the line here somewhere. Americans are protected and should be protected by the Constitution to a certain degree. And this is this is taking it too far. So I think these are these are these are important things. And I think the upcoming elections are going to be an opportunity 
opportunity to see where things go in this country, because I don't think the Supreme Court is going to take it. Uh, they're not going to take this. And if they do take it, they're going to come down again. You know, uh, they're going to they're not going they're going to come down you know, against against boycotting Israel. So I don't think that's going to make any difference one way or the other. We need to fight this fight in the elections. We need to fight this fight on the grassroots level. We need to fight this fight every place and everywhere we go or else Trump coming back big time. Yeah. And, you know, it, it is interesting, Miko, that you raise the issue of Chris Van Hollen and his comments, because I do question always what the Democratic response is, because, you know, Nancy Pelosi has said pretty famously or infamously that there are no litmus tests uh, for the Democratic Party. They don't have litmus tests uh, for uh, candidates running for uh, election uh, as Democrats. And and this was said in response to abortion. And certainly it, it applies to BDS, as we as we know that so many Democrats are quite staunchly pro-Israel. But how do you see the fact that we're not hearing from Democrats uh, the clear violation of uh, First Amendment rights that this ruling represents and and that, as you point out, uh, S-1 represented? Well, what is your feeling about, uh, you know, the fact that Democrats aren't standing up for uh, the rights of American citizens to protest and boycott as the Constitution supposedly allows us to do. You know, I think it's one of those things where politicians have to be reminded of the days when they were young and idealistic. Those of them that were, not all of them were, before they became cynical and um, and greedy for power and, uh, and just pull them back and say, do you remember those days? I mean, were you ever young and idealistic? Did you, was there any moment in your life where you decided to do what you're doing because you cared about something? Um, and there's plenty of reason to be cynical about, about the United States and about the values of the United States. But there are, there is a constitution. The constitution does provide for certain rights. And, and, and I think even the, the Democrats like Van Hollen, who clearly states without any question whatsoever is unwavering support for Israel and for giving Israel all the money and the weapons and so on. Even he says, look, there's a, there's a line here that we cannot cross. I will not you know, tell my constituents that they're not allowed to boycott. And, but again, um, it's up to us. I mean, it's up to the voters. It's up to the people like us who care about these issues to push the politicians in the right direction. They're not going to make the right choice unless they're forced to do so. Uh, maybe except for a rare occasion. It's going to be up to us to make sure that we remind them, number one, why they're in this to begin with, and number two, what their obligations are. And I would take it a step further. I think the lit- there needs to be a litmus test. And the litmus test needs to be anyone who supports Zionism, anyone who doesn't absolutely you know, and categorically reject Zionism, just like we expect them to reject anti-Semitism, just like we expect them to reject... Uh, white supremacy and so on. Anyone who does not do that is not, you know, is not a viable candidate, cannot be a viable candidate, will not get our votes, needs to be shamed. We need to stand up to the point where Zionism is understood and and placed where it should be, which is in the same column as anti-Semitism and white supremacy and so forth. That's exactly, but that's our challenge as, as voters, as constituents. That's what we need to be doing so that the politicians 
uh, and the courts understand what it is that we expect of them. Absolutely. And I think this can't be uh, understated or or overstated, rather, because more than 30 U.S. states have already passed measures condemning or attempting to restrict the boycott, divestment and sanctions or BDS campaign for Palestinian rights. Um, And uh, the law in question is actually a, a reversal of a 2017 Arkansas law, which was struck down in 2021, that required the state of Arkansas to create a blacklist of companies that boycott Israel and forced public entities to divest from blacklisted companies. Just the fact that uh, this law that has now been reversed required the state to create a blacklist of companies that participate in the BDS movement, to me, uh, Miko uh, legitimizes McCarthyism, uh, that blacklist 2022, uh, but now for people who are struggling for Palestinian rights and for an end to the Israeli occupation of Palestine. I mean, so, you know, what do people need to do at the state level in these 30 states and beyond to raise uh, the issue that this law or this uh, decision must not pass in their states? And what can they do in their states if the Supreme Court does not take up this case and the, and the ruling stands? You know, it doesn't start at the state level. It starts at the level of the school board. It starts at the level of the city councils and the mayors. You know, the Zionists uh, and all the organizations that support them and so on understood a long time ago, and I mean 100 years ago, that in America, all politics is local. So they are there at the school board level. They're there at the city council level. The, you know, mem- city members of city councils who are small cities get trips to Israel. They get visits by members of the Israeli lobby. We know very well that they're influencing um, textbooks in, in, in public schools when it comes to social studies and so on. Uh, what is said in the textbooks in public schools. They're everywhere, and the, the the struggle or the place that we need to be starts all the way at that level. Anybody running for city for city council, anybody running for school board, needs to understand what this issue is, and they're not going to understand unless we explain it to them. And there's another issue, something that I that just came up is uh, you, you may have heard that uh, maybe a year or two ago, Ben and Jerry's said they will not work with their the distributor that that sold their product because they were selling in the West Bank in the in the settlement. Right. And and they just came to an agreement to change that. And now Ben and Jerry's is selling and they've got a picture of, of, of you know Israelis in illegal set in the settlements in the West Bank, you know, with Ben and Jerry's because they just compromised and they agreed to sell to this distributor. So they that's another that's another victory that Israel has over those of us who, who support boycott. So Ben and Jerry's, you know, they were they were seen as kind of a symbol of the you know, the the strength of, of BDS and now uh they flipped. So for what it's worth, you know, we need to we need to we need to make our 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 wishes and our beliefs louder and we need to be there at every level of politics. Like I said, starting with school boards. They need to understand where we stand on the issues. They need to understand that there should be zero tolerance to any form of racism and Zionism is racism. And then we go from there. But we can't expect politicians on the state or national level to act, or even the courts, unless we're there at the very, 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 you know, basic level of school board and city council, 
to state our to state our case. Absolutely. A lot of work that continually needs to be done to ensure the freedom of Palestine. We are out of time for this segment. Want to leave it there. Thank you so much, Miko Pellet, for joining me. We'll be back uh, with By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about an important court case in Cuba and how the U.S. is spinning it. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Arnold August, a Montreal-based author of three books on U.S.-Cuba-Latin America relations. He is also an award-winning journalist, publishes in English, Spanish, and French on several continents, collaborates with Telesur, Cuban TV, and Press TV Iran, is a contributing editor for the Canada Files, and a member of the International Manifesto Group. Arnold, thanks so much for joining me. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you can join me today to talk about this recent court case uh, in Cuba in which uh, two members of a loose-knit group of dissident artists have been sentenced to prison. And of course, the United States is and and international human rights groups are decrying the uh, uh, trial and the sentencing, uh, accusing Cuba of violating the human rights of uh, these people. Um, And, you know, I, I get the feeling that there's more to this story than we are hearing about in the United States. So who are the people who were charged and sentenced uh, what were they charged for and why is this important uh, for us uh, fighting against imperialism in the U.S.? Yes, of course. So let's deal with these two individuals. One is Otero Alcantara. Uh, he, according to the judgment issued by the Cuban court, uh, he, this person, Otero, uh, Otero, sustained over time activities of offending the national flag through the publication of photos on social networks where it is used in denigrating acts accompanied by notoriously offensive and disrespectful uh, expressions, and by that underestimating the feelings of nationality and pride that the Cuban people profess to our national flag. He got five years for that, and the other person with similar charges got nine years for that. So, you know, let's let's break down a bit. The, the main talking point uh, is, oh, the, uh, the United States just dubs them as being artists. But uh, it doesn't mean very much because looking at their uh, the uh, artists, their so-called artistic ad- adventure, uh, it doesn't seem to be very convincing that they're artists. But what the most important thing uh, is that they, uh, by offending the national flag, like Jackie, you just came back from Cuba. I followed all your posts and the photographs. You could perfectly well understand when someone offends a national flag, it really gets to the very fiber of Cuban pride. By, uh, by the way, one of the publications of photos in which the flag uh, is uh, 
has been used to denigrate Cuba is he's sitting, this guy is actually sitting on a toilet bowl with the flag draped over his shoulders. So, you know, this is, this is what they're charged with. They are the ones who actually publish these posts. Now, the thing is, of course, the United States uh, has been hammering away uh, uh, using the uh, basic uh, talking points. One is artists in a very loose way, which doesn't really mean very much. And the other thing connected to that is freedom of expression. Now, the thing is that uh, the, the overall narrative is that the United States and, and the, these individuals who work closely with the United States, their basic message is, how, look how, um, in, in Cuba, look how uh, dictatorial it is. They have laws that restrict our freedom of expression. And the Ministry of Culture, by the way, uh, a few years ago did, in fact, uh, passed a decree, Decree 349, several years ago, which outlined and delimited the type of activity that, be ca that can be carried out in the name of culture if it goes against the uh, norms and values of the Cuban Revolution. So that is the basic thing. Of course, the underlying message is that, look, Cuba is dictatorial. They have a Ministry of Culture, which has its uh, regulations that imposes restrictions. Whereas in the United States, oh, there is no Ministry of Culture. Sure, there's no Ministry of Culture in the United States, but I think we will agree to say that the uh, U.S. imperialist state is the uh, 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 is an imperialist in terms of its military, in terms of its politics, and even in terms of culture. They have no Ministry of Culture, but U.S. imperialism includes the control over culture and the promotion of culture. One recent example, how much, how they are promoting so much the latest uh, film by uh, Tom Cruise, uh, uh, Top Gun, you know, to openly propose uh, and promote military adventures. So it's a sort of a, one cannot compare the United States and Cuba, which has a ministry of culture. Now, if you want me to go, like this whole issue of culture, it goes back to, in the current period, 2018-2019, when, as I mentioned, Cuba decided to ha adopt Decree 349 to uh, restrict and delimit the type of activities that can be taking place in Cuba with regards to uh, the Cuban Revolution. So you have that basic narrative of freedom of speech. The other thing that is very closely connected to it in this particular case is the race card. The U.S. once again is using the race card combined with the talking uh, points of freedom of speech in order to try to create divisions within the Cuban society and try to whip up support uh, externally, for example, in the United States for these dissidents. Now, the issue of uh, the race card is not new. I mean, it goes back you know, a couple of centuries, but in recent times, uh, if so, those of you who have my book, Cuba-U.S. Relations, if one looks at the index at the back under the term race card, you, ha you will see several entries with regards to Obama, his use of the race card as soon as he came into power in Brazil, and also the use of race card with regards to Cuba. So the, this is like a, a very toxic and dangerous mix that the U.S. is spinning, freedom of expression of so-called artists, and using the race card as well. 
Yeah, and all of that is actually really important when we consider that uh, these men, uh, in addition to uh, five-year sentences that were imposed on uh, Felix Roque Delgado and three years on two women who were convicted of hitting the police uh, as the police came in to arrest uh, Castillo, uh, the 39-year-old rapper, these men were involved in uh, composing or performing the song Patria y Vida, um, Fatherland and Life, which was a twist on a Cuban uh, Cuban government's fatherland or death slogan um, and, and is sort of a slogan, not just a slogan for opposition figures that had that was not just a slogan for opposition figures in Cuba. It was literally funded. The, the whole project, the video, all of that was funded and supported by the U.S. government. So the, the fact that these people were involved and are involved in not just, you know, regular opposition of, of their government uh, and things that they don't like about their government, but they are involved in a subversive plot uh, pushed by the U.S. government to use, quote unquote, artists and, and this rap video to undermine the Cuban government and really destroy the revolution. That really is at the heart of uh, this case, isn't it? Yeah, I'm glad that you raised that. That's very uh, uh, important points that you're making. In this video, by the way, the two people that have been uh, sentenced to five and nine years, respectively, uh, a couple of days ago, and about which the U.S. State Department is very upset, they were instrumental with others in uh, in working out that video. Now, one of the points in that video is, you know, regarding how they denigrate the Cuban tradition, the video starts off with a photo of Jose Marti, which of course you know is the the hero of the uh, Cuban nation. And then it sort of fades away into the image of someone else. Who is that someone else? George Washington. You know, that's pretty insulting. You know, they denigrate, they eliminate Jose Marti in favor of George Washington. So those five or 10 seconds of that video goes a long way to show what is what it is all about. And, you know, and they keep on, you know, for example, promoting, you mentioned how they promote it, but also in addition, the, the Time magazine named Otero, as the one of the hundred most influential people in the world in 2021. So you see the whole scenario, how they are promoting these people in order to do what? In order to create a situation whereby uh, the people outside of Cuba who may not be fully aware of what the situation would sympathize, sympathize with someone who's, oh, we're just giving our views uh, on Cuba, they're not. They're not just giving their views on Cuba. They're actually f- uh, encouraging uh, uh, uprising against the Cuban government. Uh, and uh, you know, like I, I spoke to a couple of my friends, uh, colleagues, uh, a couple of days ago with regards to the sentencing of these two individuals, and it was pretty interesting. Uh, one person said, and he, by the way, is an artist, but you know, a patriotic artist, and he said he doesn't understand why. Uh, Otero only got a, a five years sentencing and why they did not apply accusations that would allow for a sentence of much more than five years because, and according to him, they deserve more than five years. And uh, another person I spoke to, uh, another colleague, he said, well, 
as far as he's concerned, the 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 uh, chart the uh, accusations are just, but he thought that the sentences should be much much more severe because of how dangerous these people are with regards to Cuban society. And in, in discussing with him, he asked me, by the way, is one of these persons, correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, he asked me, if, is one of these people, individuals, that we have seen photographs with him sitting on a toilet with the Cuban flag uh, draped over his shoulders? I said, yes. Well, in that case, he should have gotten much more than five years. And someone else, a third person, went pretty much along the same lines that, you know, we, you know, that Cuba is, has a very complicated situation. If they uh, hand down sentences, they know that the United States will jump on it in order to uh, promote the usual talking points that Cuba is a dictatorship, there's no human rights, freedom of expression, all that. He said, but we have no choice. We have to do it. And he also hinted that, you know, five years or seven years is pretty lenient for the type of things that uh, these people have been carrying, off, carrying out on behalf of the United States against the Cuban Revolution. Yeah, and particularly, you know, in the last uh, few minutes, Arnold, particularly picking up on the issue of race, most of these people are Afro-Cuban. And, and how does the Cuban government respond to the way the U.S. uses uh, Afro-Cubans as subversive actors in, in the country to over, quite literally, to destroy the revolution and overthrow the government? I have not seen any official Cuban comment on how the United States used the, uh, the race car, but it, there's been very many comments by journalists and all that indicating that given the uh, U.S. policy, you know, long-lasting policy of discrimination and genocide against, the, uh, against Africans or black people in the United States, they have no right, no legitimacy to a question or to lecture Cuba with regards to human rights and the treatment of uh, blacks in, in, uh, in, in Cuba. I mean, you know, in Cuba, a momentous revolution took place. You, you saw it with your own eyes when you visited various places, yeah. museums, and all that, in which the, you know, the, one of the first things that was done was to undo the racist structure that existed in Cuba as a hangover from slavery. Of course, they are the first to admit there are things to be done. They have to improve that whole situation. But it is not something that this, this accusation of race card, the, the Cuban government is not intimidated by this at all. Good to know, and we can need to continue to lift up Cuba and help them in solidarity uh, defend their revolution. And want to thank you, Arnold August, so much for joining me for this discussion. We're going to leave it there for this segment, but we will be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. To by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
Today, we're talking about new efforts in the U.S. attacks on China with more accusations about forced labor in Xinjiang. And I'm happy to be joined by K.J. No, a scholar, educator and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia Pacific. He's also a member of Veterans for Peace and senior correspondent with Flashpoints on KPFA. K.J., thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Absolutely glad to have you on to talk about yet another salvo in the uh, ongoing U.S. attacks against China. Uh, And now the U.S. uh, begins enforcement of uh, something called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, or the UFLPA, today. And they claim that it is uh, to uh, um, focus on imports from China's Xinjiang region, citing so-called forced labor concerns. And this piece of legislation was actually passed last year. It went into effect uh, today. What is this uh, Forced Labor Prevention Act, and what does it really do, uh, KJ? Well, it creates a presumption that anything coming out of the Xinjiang region of China is assumed to be slave labor and is therefore banned. Now, the reason for this is it is a way to attack and delegitimate China, but it's also a way to create unemployment and economic disruption in the Xinjiang region, which uh, traditionally has been uh, a restive state because of underdevelopment. So this is a way of trying to encourage more unrest, more uh, separatism, and more terrorism in that area, which then will be used to attack China. It has nothing to do with helping or supporting uh, the Uyghur population in that area, and it starts with a presumption of guilt. Now, this will create massive problems for U.S. supply chains because one of the key, one of the key um, uh, products which is imported from Xinjiang is cotton. It's uh, possibly close to about 20% of the global total. Now, cotton goes into everything, you know, not simply in, into clothes, but it glo- goes into toiletries, you know, diapers, uh, uh, military fatigues. All of these have cotton in them. And therefore, it will create massive disruptions in the global supply chain. It will also possibly put out of work uh, probably about 100,000 young people in the United States who have started working on solar energy panels because the polysilicon that goes into solar energy panels uh, is considered to be uh, created with slave labor, of course, without any proof whatsoever. Yeah, but and oh, I'm sorry, this, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so this will uh, disrupt or actually destroy, you know, any pretension to having uh, a green economy or a green new deal. Yeah, and you know, the the issue of unemployment in the Xinjiang region is extremely important because China has actually created opportunities to ensure employment for residents of all ethnic groups in the Xinjiang region. So I'm wondering if you can help people understand why that 
fact is important in regard to uh, these continued specious claims about forced labor and concentration camps and, and even genocide of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. What is the relationship that China has with uh, the Uyghur population in Xinjiang and why are the, their efforts to create employment opportunities and education so important in what is really happening there? Well, China is a multi-ethnic, uh, multi, uh, you know, multi-religious uh, uh, civilizational state, and it's been that way for millennia. And the Islamic population and Islamic culture are actually a very deep part of Chinese culture itself. There's Islamic Kung Fu, there's Islamic Chinese cuisine, uh, and there are four indigenous schools of Sufism uh, that uh, that developed in China. So it's been a very, very important part of Chinese culture. Uh, but uh, in the post-Soviet uh, uh, era, and leading up to it, really, after Operation Cyclone, which was used to dismantle and attack the Soviet Union, the U.S. lit upon a strategy of using radical Wahhabi uh, separatism, uh, uh, the kind of takfiri Salafist Islam as a way of undermining China. Uh, and this was implemented in the Xinjiang region. As a response to this, the Chinese tend to be materialists. They're Marxists, they're materialists, and they saw this as a result of the material conditions leading to dissent, uh, which were then uh, co-opted into a kind of radical nationalist separatism. So their response was to create opportunities and training uh, and uh, economic development in the region. So a lot of companies were encouraged to develop, uh, go into Xinjiang and develop. And at the same time, they did a lot of training. And a lot of people from Xinjiang were also encouraged, for example, to go to Guangzhou, Guangzhou and Shanghai and work there. And this was a way of creating uh, you know, economic development and balancing things out. And this is literally the case. I mean, the economy has grown in leaps and bounds, and the population of Xinjiang uh, has increased sixfold from 1949. The life expectancy of Uyghurs has increased 150%, and Uyghurs themselves were exempt from the one-child policy. And all this is to say that these notions of genocide are completely without any foundation, but they're part of this information warfare that the United States is uh, using to attack and delegitimate China as part of a way to prepare very possibly for kinetic war, at the very least Cold War. And so the farther away we are from the truth, the closer you know that we are coming towards uh, kinetic war. Mm. You know, particularly with this piece of legislation, the way they uh, obfuscate the truth by focusing on the corporations, the companies in uh, operating in Xinjiang and forcing them to uh, submit to a requirement. They call it a rebuttal presumption that requires corporations to prove with clear and convincing evidence that imports from the region are not made by forced labor. And this seems to me, KJ, to be, uh, number one, a way to uh, bog down corporations under additional regulations and paperwork and 
which will cost them more money, which is interesting, considering how corporations in this country don't like regulations. Um, but it also seems to me the the result, the outcome of this legislation will obviously the goal is to create unemployment among Uyghur Muslims, but that seems to me to be very discriminatory at the same time. And if this country is claiming that they're doing this to protect Uyghur Muslims in China from slave labor and concentration camps and genocide, this legislation and all other policies uh, that the U.S. is imposing on China in regard to this issue seem to me to target the very people and to disenfranchise them in a way that China actually is not doing. Exactly. You're absolutely correct. As I said, you know, the Uyghur population has grown in leaps and bounds sixfold, and the economy has developed, you know, once again by leaps and bounds. But this has nothing to do with supporting or helping or preventing discrimination against Uyghurs. It's actually designed to create discrimination against Uyghurs, to punish them. Uh, it's a little bit like the Vietnam uh, War era logic, where they bomb the village in order to save it. The Uyghurs are targets. And the idea is by putting pressure on them and by creating living conditions that are uh, unlivable, that this will stoke discontent and therefore delegitimate the Chinese government and possibly increase, uh, you know, the response of, uh, you know, Takfiri and Salafist movements. And so all of this is built on a presumption of guilt. It's really a weaponization uh, of sanctions. It's, you know, it's economic warfare. And as for countering this presumption of guilt, that is something which is almost impossible. Let's take an average clothing brand. It has maybe 10, 12,000 different apparel items. Those are uh, sourced from two to 5,000 uh, suppliers. And those suppliers have somewhere between 20 to 50,000 subcontractors. So to track all of that down, and then to show that every single fiber in every single article has no uh, slave labor anywhere along its supply chain, it's trying to prove the negative. We can assume that somewhere along the line there may be something, and it comes from all over the world. But in order to do that, they've created an impossible task, a presumption of guilt, uh, 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 you know, the, the need to prove a negative, which cannot happen. And therefore, this is designed to destroy the economy uh, in April, which, by the way, 24 million people over the world are also uh, involved in. Yeah. And, you know, a little pivot to the BRICS summit, which is actually quite related uh, because uh, the 14th summit of BRICS was held virtually uh, by China on Thursday, June 23rd. And the summit was attended by Russian President Vladimir Putin, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, Chinese President Xi Jinping, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa and Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro via video conferencing. You know, they issued a declaration uh, at the end of the summit that talked about broadening and strengthening the participation of emerging markets and developing countries in the international decision making and norm setting 
processes, and they talked about expanding and including more countries uh, under the format of BRICS. And I'm wondering how you are seeing this uh, a statement, an intention from the BRICS conference playing into the uh, um, effectiveness, the efficacy of the U.S. policy toward China and, of course, countries that are in alliance with China and how you think uh, this emerging and expanding BRICS collaboration will be able to counter uh, continued U.S. uh, hegemonic uh, actions toward China and Russia? Well, it's a long-term strategy. In the short term, it's a direct balancing act and message to the G7 meeting, uh, which uh, is happening right now, in uh, which, which has just terminated in Bavarian, in the Bavarian Alps. And now the NATO summit, which is happening in Madrid, uh, both of these have been uh, dogged by, you know, massive protests, both against the G7 and NATO. But they've also been put down incredibly with overwhelming force in, uh, you know, Bavaria. It's 18,000 riot troops holding, you know, uh, thousands of protesters at bay at a distance of you know, 13 miles or something. It's just incredible, the no-protest zone. But all of this is to say that the BRICS summit is a declaration of a new model of development. This is the long-term strategy, is that uh, we understand that prior to China's ascent, development was always understood as becoming more Western. It was understood as becoming more capitalist and becoming more Western. There was only one model. Uh, There was no alternative. And China, along with the other BRICS countries, have called for rejection of this Cold War mentality, block confrontation, and to build a community of security for all and to create a different pole of development. That is very, very significant because as we see what we we're seeing this reestablishment of blocks, uh, a kind of decoupling of economies, and really an escalation back into uh, Cold War rhetoric, most notably with the just released NATO uh, NATO's declaration of hostilities against China. So uh, this notion that there is some kind of rules-based international order that the democratic West is trying to uphold uh, a complete uh, falsity, a fabrication against, you know, quote unquote, authoritarian states. Again, you know, complete mischaracterization. This kind of Cold War block forming and polarization, the BRICS summit is an attempt to head that off, but also uh, a call to the other countries of the world that there is an alternative way, there is a better way, there is a new way of development, and we do not have to fall under the, uh, uh, you know, the neoliberal imperium and and to be subverted and to be uh, subordinated, as always has been the case in the last uh, seventy years. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Xi noted during the meeting, uh, during the summit, that some countries attempt to expand military alliances to seek absolute security, stock block based con- uh, confrontation by coercing other countries into picking sides and pursue unilateral dominance at the expense of others' rights and interests, not 
outright directly naming the United States, but clearly talking about the United States. Xi asked uh, BRICS members to support each other and, quote, reject hegemony, bullying and division. And he proposed the opera, uh, uh, the opera, operationalization, sorry, of a global security initiative, initiative to create a new path of security that features dialogue over confrontation, partnership over reliance, and win-win over zero-sum, which means, sounds to me like a reduction in militarism that is always pushed by the U.S., but I think the other significant uh, thing that came out of the BRICS summit was that they agreed to include other countries like the UAE, Bangladesh, Egypt, and Uruguay as new members um, and to expand and strengthen alternatives to the SWIFT banking system, which I think is very important um, considering how Russia uh, and China have already operationalized the alternative to the SWIFT banking system uh, since the onset of the war in Ukraine. So how how significant is the uh, expansion of this new development bank, uh, which will open up its branch in India, to the ability for BRICS countries to receive financing that is in competition with what they would get from the IMF. It's very, very important because it signals that this shift in uh, shift towards multipolarity is accompanied by financial institutions and capacities that can support that. And that means that the kind of top-down uh, parasite host, uh, hegemonic control of the global economy by the West is starting to waver. Uh, remember, you know, capitalist societies become highly financialized, and then this is how they exert control uh, through a neo-colonial fashion over the, the the southern periphery. And so, to create uh, banks and uh, forms of uh, capital accumulation that are not beholden to the, uh, you know, the IMF and the World Bank and the uh, post World War II, uh, you know, Western Atlantic uh, structures is very, very important. In particular, you know, currently there are six different uh, systems, uh, including SWIFT, for the transfer of, of funds. But as this shifts more and more to non Western systems, we will also see the accompaniment of de dollarization. The US and the, you know, the global north. Uh, largely, what they export is debt, and in return for that, they get uh, valuable commodities. Uh, but they can only they only have this endless credit card to the extent that the dollar is the global reserve currency. And as uh, the financial institutions and the transfer systems move away from the dollar and become more uh, indigenous or more international, but not beholden to the dollar then we see the global reserve currency uh, weakened and the U.S.'s unlimited credit card uh, will be taken away. Uh, regarding security, the Chinese concept of security is mutual and sustainable security. This is a fundamental concept in international relations. Uh, and the idea is that it's built on dialogue, it's built on win-win, it's built on cooperation, and it's built on development. 
as opposed to the U.S. hegemonic system, which is win-lose, zero-sum, and top-down. This is uh, an attempt to create a more horizontal, more equitable, and more mutually sustainable system of security. This bodes great possibilities, uh, but at the same time, we see the lines of conflict sharpening, as again, as I said most recently, with the, the NATO uh, NATO summit uh, declaration. Absolutely. We are out of time for this segment. We're going to leave it there. I want to thank KJ No so much for joining me, but we will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Yes, friends, we are back. It is Wednesday, June 29th. Uh, in, in 20 minutes, we'll be opening the phone lines to you so you can give us a call and let us know what's on your mind about anything that's happening in the world. Anything at all, we definitely want to hear from you. But that is not the only way you can reach out and touch us at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us then at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. You can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.Mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital and you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington DC area from 2 to 4 PM Eastern time and we're streaming for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. Rumble.com slash C slash B A M necessary. The chat is live and remember friends at 320 PM Eastern today. You can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And I am happy to be joined today by Dr. Radhika Desai, a professor at the University of Manitoba and director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group. Dr. Desai, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jackie. Very glad to have you on today. There is so much in international news going on that we need to be very clear on. And I think the first order of business is to unpack what just happened with NATO. NATO formally invites Finland and Sweden to join the alliance. We've been talking about the lead up to this possibility for weeks on the show. Now that it's finally uh, happened, Finland and Sweden will be invited to join NATO. What can we expect to happen and why is this actually terrible news for the rest of the world? Well, I think that, uh, first of all, it's terrible news for the rest of the world, chiefly because you are looking at the expansion of a relatively incoherent and very dangerous so-called defensive military alliance. In fact, I should say so-called defensive so-called alliance, because, of course, 
as you know, in the run up to the um, to the in, you know the, the in the run up to inviting and 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 you know uh, getting uh, Finland and 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 Sweden into NATO, there are a number of problems that have already been seen. First of all. The Finnish and Swedish governments have taken this decision without really consulting people. Mm. And I think that's going to come back to bite them, I have no doubt. Particularly as the unfolding of the war in uh, Ukraine and the unfolding of the recession that now everybody expects, which is going to be far more serious than anything we've seen in absolutely decades. So I think when these things hit, I'm not sure that the Swedes and the Finns are going to be so enthusiastic about joining NATO and spending all that much money. Secondly, within NATO, you know that the Western press simply is is saying, you know, oh, uh, uh, Sweet, uh, uh, Turkey has withdrawn its its uh, uh, opposition to admitting NATO. The fact of the matter is, Turkey extracted concessions from Sweden and Finland, which they never wanted to give. Hmm. So that already creates more lines of division. There are already many lines of division within NATO. We know that, for example. The uh, uh, British and the Americans on the one side and the continental Europeans on the other side, led by Germany and France, they have very deep differences. You know that. I mean, they have had, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that Britain and, 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 and the U.S. have actually had it relatively easy of all this, whereas it is continental Europe that is particularly Germany that is being asked to pay the price in terms of essentially, um, uh, you know, essentially harming their own productive economy by, by uh, harming their prospects for importing energy from Russia. So that's already been a long simmering thing. And as you know, recently, what happened was that they said, well, they are not, you know, they, they said that we are going to uh, 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 put a cap on Russian oil price. Like All of that was just like a silly uh, a frill, silly embellishment in order to hide the fact that they had to suspend their silly attempt to try to restrict imports of oil via tankers. So in order to hide that, they said, oh, we are going to try and have a, a, a oil price cap. But in the end, there's going to be no oil price cap. It is absolutely impossible to implement. So that's the second line of, of, uh, of you know, there's the Turkey, Turks and the rest of NATO. There's a, the uh, second line of division between the Americans and the Continentals on the other. And, and then there's a third line of division, which is that basically... You know, NATO has now includes all these uh, Eastern European countries, many of whom are themselves divided over what to do. So even uh, in most, I don't know if you saw, but the, the Pew Research poll conducted uh, showed that the overwhelming majority of people in all European countries, with the sole exception of Poland, would like there to be a very quick negotiated settlement because they are fed up of rising prices, and rising prices are really hurting. So so let's just say, let, let's just take that as a sort of for starters, that there are so many contradictions in NATO, but NATO is armed to the teeth, NATO is creating a lot of mischief, and it is creating a lot of mischief not to achieve any clear strategic goal, but essentially to keep conflict festering so that NATO maintains its purpose and the Americans and everybody else who wants to sell arms make profit hand over fist.
Yeah. And, you know, as we're talking about uh, the way the rest of the world sees uh, the conflict in Ukraine and wanting a a negotiated settlement like yesterday, most people are just tired of it at this point because they really are uh, suffering because of it. What is Volodymyr Zelensky doing? But he is begging, quite literally begging in a videotaped address to NATO. uh, Please let us in. He he actually uh, said, quote, is our contribution to the defense of both Europe and the whole civilization still insufficient What else is needed then in his plea for Ukraine to be allowed into the NATO alliance? And I and I mean, of course, we know, Dr. Desai, that Ukraine's role in this uh, conflict has not been to defend Europe and certainly not to defend all of civilization since Ukraine being allowed to be uh, you or allowing themselves to be used as a proxy by the United States has actually brought us closer us being all of civilization closer to a nuclear conflict with Russia that has been quite literally defending itself against U.S. and its allies' uh, aggression, using NATO advancement closer and closer to Russia's borders. But, you know, we, we still have Volodymyr Zelensky trotting out the U.S. Uh, uh, and NATO line that the country that he and the Ukraine are are somehow defending Europe and defending civilization. But that really is not how the rest of the world sees it. So I am wondering how you see uh, this playing out with Ukraine now really pushing uh, and and pulling the emotional uh, uh, heartstrings to to be allowed into uh, NATO, which would only bring us that much closer to absolute disaster. I mean, Jackie, you place, uh, you know, you, you pose so many interesting questions. So let's just take them one by one. And I hope I don't forget that one of the, one of the uh, it is any important one of the many you raised. So first of all, let's begin with Zelensky. You are right that whatever he has done, whatever contribution he has made in the present situation has been anything but peaceful. In fact, he is, the way he has acted has done more to push the world closer to the brink of nuclear war than anything. Absolutely. But there's a further point. Everything he has done has been against the interest of ordinary Ukrainians. If you go back to the fact that he was elected back in 2019 precisely to implement the Minsk Accords, to improve the relations with Russia, and to end the civil war in Ukraine on all the, and of course, fourth point, end oligarchical rule. On all of these points, he has failed Ukrainian people miserably. So that's the second point. The third point is, as you rightly say, he pulls at the heartstrings. You know, one of the things I find most astonishing is that, you know, the Western press has lost all sense of shame. They portray him as this great Churchillian war hero on the one hand, and on the other hand, openly publish stories about how there is an entire PR operation that is working with him, that that chooses what sort of image to project, what he does, when he does it, writes his speeches, etc. So in that sense, Volodymyr Zelensky is no longer a person. He is a persona, which is a creation 
of the propaganda slash entertainment slash whatever you want to call it, psyops industry, okay, the public relations industry. So, so in that sense, uh, and, and by the way, he's pulling at heartstrings on the one hand, you know, send us more arms. And then on the other hand, at the same time, he has to admit that at the end of the day, there has have to be negotiations. So on the one hand, you know, so he's actually making contradictory statements because, as I said, there is no core to this person. He goes to whatever uh, venue he goes to and, and then says different things depending on the wind of the hour. And it, so I would say that, you know, anyone who wastes their time, I, mean, I suppose we should listen to him only in order to see what is behind what he says, not what is in what he says. So that's that's another point. If one can go on to a, a third point, which is that um, uh, on the matter of Ukraine's membership of NATO. Now, this is another complete fiction because the West is not fighting to bring, give membership of NATO to Ukraine. The West is fighting for something more nebulous. And it is fighting for something more nebulous because it doesn't want to, you know, it's not a fight in the sense that you fight for something and once you have got it, you finish the fight. It is a fight to fight. It is a fight to keep up tensions, as I say, to, to feed the military-industrial complex, etc. And on this point, by the way, I'm also interested to see, I, I heard a very interesting uh, 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 webinar with, from the Quincy Institute, and there are no flaming socialists, there are no, there are no partisans of Russia, etc. And they were saying that basically the decisions about, you know, how to, what arms to buy, etc., are not made on the basis of any clear strategic objectives. There's no doubt there are many people who are devoted a lot of time and effort to coming up with strategic objectives for the United States. But in the end, what they say is trumped by what the military industrial complex wants. So in that sense, so, so to coming back to, to the NATO point, NATO is just fighting a war for a nebulous principle that Ukraine has the right to be a member of NATO, even while they know that they will never give Ukraine NATO membership. Too many people are opposed. And what's more, as I said in a recent column, the fact of the matter is it serves, the, it serves NATO and all the warmongering countries in NATO, of which the chief are the UK and the US. It serves them to have Ukraine out of NATO so that Ukraine can be made to pay for or at least go into debt to NATO for all the arms it is importing. Remember, all you know, we are always told that uh, the West is giving arms aid, aiding. What do you mean aid? This is all they are running up a tab. Mm. They are running up a whacking long big tab, which whatever entity that remains in Ukraine after all this is over will have to pay. And if it doesn't pay, who knows? They may well go to war with that entity or otherwise, you know, go into hybrid war with that entity. So God knows what's going to happen. And then finally, one fine. So, so, so as far as NATO is concerned, it's all a show. A final point I'd like to make, because, you know, you were also asked, how will it all end? I would say that it is going to end based on what happens on the ground. And the West has long since, certainly over the last many weeks, it has lost control of what is happening on the ground. Because what's very clear, number one, is that they are no longer able to supply arms in the same way. Their stockpiles have been run down, uh, partly because the, the, the uh, Russians have been very good at destroying arms stockpiles. 
they have had a, a military campaign of essentially destroying those stockpiles. So uh, all of the money that is going onto the tab of Ukraine, which Ukraine will have to pay, most of these arms aren't even being used by new Ukrainian soldiers. Number two, these uh, uh, arms, the, so the arms supply is, is running down. Number two, uh, as a very interesting report from the Royal uh, United Services Institute pointed out, the West does not have the industrial capacity to produce arms at the rate at which the Russians are able to produce arms. So they are, it's not just that they're running down stockpiles, they are unable to produce more, which, by the way, is a really telling commentary on the military of the country that spends more on its military than the next X number of states mm. combined, like whatever it is, 10 states combined, not too many years ago, it was 24 states combined, etc., etc. So what does this say about, like, these people are a joke. I mean, we also know, of course, that the Russians being able to develop hypersonic missiles also created the Sputnik moment. This Overly coddled military financial military industrial complex has not been able to produce anything comparable. So that's another dimension, you know, of how this is turning out. And finally, from everything, all the sources that I'm reading and listening to, and so on, what I'm also gathering is that basically Ukraine has lost not only a lot of troops, but all its best troops are lost, either taken prisoner or killed, or wounded, or otherwise put out of commission, which means that they are basically scraping the bottom of the barrel. And I don't want to insult any individual Ukrainian who may be fighting, who may think they're fighting for their country. I mean, that's fine. But the point is that this is a very serious situation from a strategic point of view. So it is a matter of time, and that time will be determined by the Russians when they will declare that their aims are one, because it's not simply not true that the Russians want to occupy all of Ukraine. They have never had any intention of doing so. So what will happen will then, the particular manner in which all of this unfolds will determine what will happen since. But as far as we know so far, I would say that the Americans and the British in particular want this war to continue and continue endlessly. Where there is some sign of, there might be some sign of hope, you know, as they say, in the contradiction lies the hope. Mm -hmm. If the unity of the Western alliance crumbles under the strain of military expenditure, the unpopularity of the war, the inflation, recession, etc., etc., if that crumbles, then I think that would be a very good thing. Because quite frankly, NATO had never actually, you know, we, we may say, some people may say NATO had lost its uh, 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 raison d'etre, its reason for existing back at the end of the Cold War. But you, if you look further back, it actually never had any reason for existing. So, but that's another whole topic altogether. Yes, it is. And it is a topic I want to get into along with some others on the other side of the first break of the hour. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik here in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
phone lines are now open, friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Dr. Radhika Desai. Dr. Desai, on the other side of the break, you said that NATO never had a reason to exist in the first place. And, and our friends in the chat, shout out to the By Any Means Necessary chat on Rumble. They love that. They really would like for you to expound on that idea that Russia really that uh, I'm sorry, that NATO really didn't have a right to exist. But I, I suspect that this is all about destroying Russia. And it has been all along. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think one has to understand that the Russian Revolution was always a big thorn in the side of the Americans and the British in particular, because you ha- you also have to understand that in one sense, the Americans and British are the two countries in the world who have um, always wanted to create a sort of unified world capitalism, right? And the British managed to create a sort of simulacrum of that, partly because they just had such a large empire, right, back in before 1914, let's say. But uh, and then the United States has, you know, been um, engaged in the effort to do so, well, since the early 20th century and certainly since the end of the Second World War. But because, whereas, you know, the other capitalist countries, take Japan or Germany, for example, they have always had a more regional conception. They are also imperialist, but they have had a more regional conception of what they want to do, how they want to integrate uh, territories outside their core territories into their own economy. So they have worked on a very different and, I would say, more productively inclined uh, idea of capitalism, whereas the, uh, you, Britain always, and the U.S. certainly since the 1970s, has operated on this very financialized conception of domination, uh, uh, essentially, uh, 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 you know, the sterling system followed by the dollar system, etc., etc. So they are very, very different. Secondly, from the beginning, the British and the Americans in particular were very much in the forefront of fighting a war against, you know, funding the civil war against the fledgling revolution back in after 1917, and which went right up into the early 20s. And in fact, until the 1930s, the Americans did not even uh, have uh, diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union. Like, like this is, you know, nearly uh, a, a, a decade and a half after the revolution had, had occurred, and most countries had established some sort of diplomatic relations, but they didn't. And they only, FDR, the, uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, only uh, uh, reestablished or established uh, 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 diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union in the 1930s when, you know, the Americans, because they had no colonies to speak of. And as a result of that, they were suffering the most from the Great Depression because, you know, all the other countries, they had foreign markets, you know, they could dump their goods in. Americans didn't. So they, uh, businessmen in America wanted to reestablish relations because at least that would be another market no matter how tiny. So, so that was what, how, how you got the establishment of diplomatic relations, but that did not last long. By the time the war had ended, you had another extremely sort of, as we know today, as a sort of liberal internationalist type president in office, namely Harry Truman. And he was very clear right from the start that uh, the Russians may have been critical to winning the Cold War. Without the Russian and, I should say, the Chinese contribution, the West would not have won the Cold War. I mean, the West would not have won the Second World War. Despite that, they knew that for now that Germany had been defeated and Japan was 
be on its knees. Therefore, was the Soviet Union. And I would say that it was as much about anti-communism as it is about the fact that they basically do not want such a large state to exist. Russia is the biggest state in the world. I, I don't know if people appreciate this, but I sometimes tell my classes that you may not realize this, but, you know, we in Canada or America, we may, be, we may think, oh, we have three or four time zones. Isn't that amazing? The Russians have 11 time zones in their territory. Wow. So uh, so that's just to give you an idea of how big it is. And they actually would not like such a big entity to exist. Imperialism has always, you know, wanted their own states to be big, but they want to break up other states, which, by the way, is the reason why they constantly foment uh, so-called nationalist uh, uh, dissent. And they always speak about national self-determination and nation building and all these sorts of things. What they mean by that is that they want to create puppet governments. But, but let's leave that aside. So, so the thing is that so what I was going for here is that basically, you know, everybody, people date the start of the Cold War with the civil war in Greece and the funding, you know, sending of arms to Greece and so on. No, it actually goes back to the summer of 1945 when the Americans decided to drop the bomb on Hiroshima and later on Nagasaki because the atomic bomb, because it was not because that was needed. All the scholarship now shows it was not necessary to end the war with Russia. Uh, sorry, with, with Japan. Japan was already on its knees. It was suing for peace. They decided to bomb uh, the Japanese nation because, well, the Japanese were, of course, they were not white. And therefore, there would be a good arena on which to demonstrate to the Russians the power of the weapons that the Americans wielded. And so the idea was that they would be sort of, you know, back away in fear and then, you know, give in to the Americans on everything. Well, that did not happen. And within four short years, the Russians had their own atomic weapons. Of course, then there followed a couple of decades of Russian delivery capacity inferiority. You know, the Americans could station nuclear weapons wherever they liked, you know, right next to uh, the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union was very far away from the United States. Anyway, to, to make a long story short, the, so the NATO alliance was part of this larger liberal internationalist scheme of creating a set of powers that would be willing to police the world. Okay, so, so and by the way, this also showed that from the earliest point onwards, even before the United Nations was created, the West did not want to be part of some international organization that had all these rabble of, you know, these newly decolonized countries and countries like the Soviet Union and, 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 and later on the Eastern European countries and so on. And, and event, yeah, in fact, China was kept out of it for a long time with the stupid pretense that the tiny island of Taiwan was the real China. Well, anyway, so they didn't want to be part of a, a democratic United Nations where all the peoples of the world, all the nations of the world were represented. And so NATO has always been an anti a true, a kind of an anti-universalist, essentially imperialist alliance. A um, couple of other things. NATO calls itself a defensive alliance. It, has, it was formed first. Uh, people say, oh, well, NATO versus Warsaw Pact, so it was mutual deterrence. No, NATO was created back in the late 40s and uh, uh, 47, I think. And then the uh, uh, Warsaw Pact was not created until after 1954 when Germany 
joined NATO. Right. It was something that the Russians found very scary, given that they had lost, I think, over about 30 million people in the Second World War. Right. So this is, was truly scary for them. So then they created the Warsaw Pact. So first of all, NATO is not defensive. It has always been aggressive. Secondly, throughout the Cold War, NATO undertook not a single military operation as NATO. Not a single one. But after the Cold War ended, after the, the demise of the Soviet Union, it has been engaged in one sort of war after another. So it is definitely not defensive. During the Cold War, it was deterred by Soviet power, but also, by the way, by Soviet restraint, because the Soviets always wanted to give up, to declare a no-first-use principle. The Americans never did. The Soviets finally, in the early 90s, threw in the hat and said, okay, we are unilaterally declaring no first use. But the Americans still didn't do it, right? But anyway, so, so the NATO, and, and a final point is NATO is not even an alliance because at the end of the day, there were, although because of the points I made earlier, the British and the Americans on the one hand, and to some extent Canada is part of that gang as well, and the Europeans, on the other, have very different conceptions of what an economy is, how it functions, what it needs, etc. With the British and the Americans being far more sort of on the financial side, and the Germans and, and others, other European countries being far more on the productive side. So, so in that sense, there are those historic differences, and plus... They, these countries are also imperialist in their own way. So, you know, France for a long time did not accept the, being part of NATO command. I think it was like, I forget, from the 60s to about 2004 or six or thereabouts. France was not under NATO military command. In the late 1960s, as uh, things were becoming more difficult, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the Willy Brandt, for example, began pursuing his Ostpolitik, his, his policy of friendly relations with the Soviet Union, to such an extent that in the end the Americans had to throw in their hat and also establish detente and, and friendly relations with the Soviet Union and so on and so forth. So, whatever NATO has done, which is a contribution towards peace, has been under duress and under deterrence. But otherwise, it has been a military, aggressive military alliance all the way through, or uh, aggressive military force led by the U.S. and the U.K., because it's not truly really an alliance. And I've already recounted the different fissures, you know, between uh, Turkey and the Europeans, between different types of Eastern European countries, and then between the Germans and the French on the one hand and the British and the Americans on the other, in terms of what NATO should do, what it should be. So all of these differences are already there. They're just beneath the surface of the rhetoric right now. The differences have been papered over by rhetoric. But, you know, this summit, the Madrid summit, is going to talk about essentially creating some sort of strategy vis-a-vis -vis China. And I would say that as and when this becomes more and more prominent, I can only imagine that these difficulties will deepen, these problems will deepen, because China is engaging with a lot of European countries, and whether they will be willing to sacrifice their relations with China just because the U.S. and the U.K. say so is not clear at all. Yeah, definitely uh, true. As we look at the recent BRICS uh, summit, where uh, some very 
important decisions were made in regard to setting up the new development bank where developing countries can uh, secure a loan that's not tied to the IMF and their, you know, neoliberal and austerity policies uh, that are triggered whenever a developing nation does something that the U.S. or the Western powers does not like. You know, but you said that, you know, NATO exists basically as a way for the U.S. to police the world. And and the Biden administration is still using NATO in that way. And, and as a matter of fact, he's uh, increasing troops, adding 100,000 troops to uh, uh, Europe and deploy more military equipment to NATO allies. Now, this was the guy who I thought campaigned, Dr. Desai, on uh, drawing down U.S. military troops all over the world and, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but he just come, came right out and said, we're stepping up in regard to Ukraine. We're providing, sorry, we're proving that NATO is more needed now than it ever has been, absolutely is not. And the additions of military equipment includes rotational deployments of troops to Romania and the Baltic region and a permanent army headquarters base and other units in Poland. When we consider right now that in this country, there is still a baby formula shortage. This country cannot provide safe formula for babies that, that, that we are heading toward a recession. Gas prices are inflated for no good reason other than the fossil fuel companies are just price gouging us and using the Ukraine war as an excuse. I, I think this is the, just the, the bridge too far for a lot of people, not in this country, not just in uh, 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 Biden's uh, approval ratings, which is already hovering around 30 something percent. I think it's going to get much, much worse uh, with the news that the U.S. is sending 100,000 troops to Europe. But I think it also puts the nail in the coffin for the Democratic Party in the midterms and in 2024, because I feel like this gambit in Ukraine is is a way for Biden to boost his popularity, because this is what presidents in the past have done when they have run into problems with their domestic policies being popular. They start some war somewhere. They, you know, get the U.S. involved in some conflagration uh, where they have to defeat this enemy that is a threat to U.S. freedom and liberty. That's not going so well this time with Biden and Ukraine. And the news that 100,000 troops are going to be sent to Europe as a response uh, to continue to bolster this proxy war in Ukraine, I think this spells doom for the Democratic Party. But I'm wondering your thoughts on it. Biden's performance across the board has been so lackluster. Uh, you know, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's COVID, whether it's Ukraine, I mean, whether it's the recession and inflation and so on. I mean, on every front. So I would say, I mean, I, I think I would not be wrong to say, I think I remember reading somewhere very recently, the last week or two, that uh, Biden's approval ratings are some of the lowest that they have ever been for any president, certainly lower than Trump's at this stage in his uh, 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 in, in, 
his presidency. So there is no, and there's, to me, I would say that there is no doubt that the Democrats are going to take quite a beating in the midterms. Uh, the really interesting thing will be how big a beating will they take? Will there be so many Republicans that some of them will not be Trumpites at all? And that will be an interesting show on its own. But that's a separate matter. But to come back to the popularity of the war, let me say two things, one domestically and the other internationally. Domestically, you're absolutely right. Certainly no, nobody in America thinks that this war is worth pursuing. Everybody you ask says, you know, I'm more concerned about the price of gas and, 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 and as you say, you know, baby formula and other such, you know, day-to-day matters. I mean, what is the point? You know, so people people get it. The second thing is that I would say that even, you know, remember, even Obama came to office saying that he was going to uh, pull back troops and then he didn't. And then Trump, of course, at least, you know, he may not have pulled back too many troops, but he, well, he certainly started the process of withdrawal from Afghanistan. And, you know, according to most pundits, they point out that he didn't start a new war, which is interesting, but certainly Biden has already done that. So anyway, the, 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 the point is that domestically it's not very popular. Uh, and I think that Americans, generally speaking, you know, when American foreign policy specialists say, oh, America should not become isolationist, that is really an argument against the instinct of decent American people who don't want to fight foreign wars, who don't want to cause bloodshed far away, who would rather just look after their own, you know, sort of look, look after their own country, invest in their own country, etc. But this is what is labeled as isolationism so that, you know, you can sort of knock it off and then you can say, well, really, America has a duty to promote democracy and human rights, which is really just a euphemism for saying that America has a duty to promote neoliberal capitalism of a sort that expands the profit opportunities and the plunder opportunities for big American corporations, whether they are financial or non-financial. So so that's what's really happening. And internationally, I would say that, you know, you referred to the IMF and the World Bank earlier. You know, certainly, uh, you know, in the post, uh, after the Cold War, ended up the Soviet Union disintegrated, then we had maybe a few short years when people might have been forgiven for believing that, you know, uh, we are in a unipolar world. But it very soon became clear that that was not so. The Europeans started asserting themselves, and in many ways, the American intervention in Yugoslavia was to to essentially push back at the European effort to essentially create their own autonomous European foreign policy independent of the United States. And that is one thing the United States did not want, because, as you will remember, one of the things I forgot to say, but one of the most famous quotes for uh, 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 four famous sentences, apocryphal statements, is one attributed to Lord Ismay, the, 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 the first Secretary General of NATO who was supposed to have said that the purpose of NATO is to keep the Americans in, in Europe, that is, the Americans in, the Germans down, and the Russians out. Mm. And you can see that that's kind of playing out itself out rather interestingly now, which is why this phrase keeps being quoted. But it is something worth, you know, it still bears quoting. So, 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 so they, they, they were quoting. Uh, the uh, uh, European autonomy, and very soon, by the new century, it was already becoming clear that uh, if there was a victory for America in the Cold War, it was a pyrrhic victory because America's economy was going down the tank, 
at a relatively rapid rate. In the 2000s and 2010s, its deindustrialization has accelerated to such an extent as to provoke the kind of uh, 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 resistance to it, which lacking a left-wing leadership ended up electing somebody like Trump. But nevertheless, Trump had, you know, Trump knew which buttons to press. He knew that if he talked about trade, if he talked about jobs, he would get elected. And, and he kind of did. He didn't get elected fair and square, let's say, but he kind of managed to pull it off just about. So and he wouldn't have if it wasn't for the horrible state of the U.S. economy. That's the main point. So so to come back to the main point, the, 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 the Americans, uh, so, 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 so NATO, is uh, uh, essentially has been very aggressive since that time. It has never been popular around the world. So the rest of the world has seen these aggressive actions. They have seen that China can do okay. Since, 24, since, uh, since uh, Putin became president, they have seen that Putin has managed to stabilize Russia after the nightmare of the 1990s. After 2014, he managed to deal with sanctions. They also saw, by the way, the IMF and the World Bank's clearly biased interventions in numerous financial crises. And the East Asian financial crisis of 1997-98 was really the, 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 the world had, was fed up because they saw that they, what, the, what the IMF and the World Bank could do in the interest of America, even to a large and highly productive economy like South Korea. So they also began to lose their clients, their portfolios shrank in this period. And they have remained relatively small, although after 2008, they got a few more clients and maybe now they're giving their money to Ukraine on God knows what sort of grounds there that should be investigated. But anyway, so, so the thing is that liberal institutions, the American liberal internationalist institutions, whether it's the WTO, the IMF, the World Bank, and NATO are all in trouble. The reason is because, you know, and here, let me just make one final point. Um, you know, basically, I said earlier that NATO is against the UN, right? That they, the NATO wants to have, essentially, it wants to create imperial power rather than to share power with all the nations and peoples of the world. Right. The UN implies. So that's what it is. And then, um, uh, so, so what, you know, imagine, you know, how, how do you create uh, peace, right? Imagine that you are in, in, in your neighborhood. You have two options. If you want to create, you know, and ensure your security, you can ring around your lot with guns, threatening every one of your neighbors, or you can build good relations with them, relations of solidarity. You know, I'll lend you my lawnmower if you lend me, I don't know, your uh, something else. Etc. So, if so, there are two different ways of approaching it. So, at the international level, you can create security by arming yourself to the teeth, which actually is self-defeating because it actually leads to more insecurity. Or you can create real security by creating development. And the Americans have been absolutely first in the rank for creating the rhetoric of development, but they have been absolutely last in the rank of any country of actually promoting development. So, and this is what you see in the BRICS, you know, you, the BRICS declaration, etc. The, the BRICS and, and, the, and, the, and Chinese leadership in particular embodies, and generally I would say third world principles, you know, as embodied in the Panjashil Accord, uh, Accords between China and India and later on in the non-aligned movement and other such organizations. It has always been about mutual solidarity, mutual respect, 
respect for sovereignty, etc., which is precisely the principles that NATO and the so-called, so-called rules-based international order, which is really an international order based on whatever America seems to want at that particular time. This these two are completely antithetical. And you are seeing that in the long run, I mean, NATO and the United States may end up succeeding in making, in, in, in wreaking a lot of destruction, but they are not going to succeed in much else. The undertow is going to be toward this more sane, sensible, cooperative, uh, and beneficial approach. Yeah, and that undertow is actually gaining steam and that wave is getting bigger. As uh, you just mentioned, uh, the BRICS summit and Iran and Argentina have applied to uh, become members of BRIC as they underscore the pursuit of development and solidarity in the BRICS conference, uh, uh, as opposed to the U.S. uh, imperialist, uh, U.S.-led imperialist hegemonic world order. How significant is it, Dr. Desai, that Iran and Argentina uh, Argentina are applying to become BRICS nations? I, I think it's very significant, and I would say that if uh, uh, you know, in, I think that there is, there is the BRICS. There will be a lot of other organizations. There's the China-oriented RCEP, and so on. There are many such institutions. There's the Belt and Road Initiative, etc. As these institutions expand their membership, I think it can only be a good thing. One of the interesting things of this last few months for me has been the fact that even. Brazil and India, which are currently ruled by extremely right-wing, in many ways morally repugnant people, have actually uh, not gone in with Western sanctions. You know, Narendra Modi or Jair Bolsonaro, you know that they they are among the most pro-U.S. leaders in the world. But I think there is something about the undertow of uh, or, or the weight of political opinion in their country that they cannot go against if they want to win elections. Even if, you know, because at the end of the day, they can use all the fraud, etc., that they like, and they do use it. But at the end of the day, they cannot engineer fraud all over the country. So they have to have some fear of public opinion. And I think that has been an extremely good thing. Uh, so, so I would say that the more I, I think, if Argentina joins, if, if if Iran joins, and if more countries feel if they, if they are properly integrated, if if the BRICS organization or and these other organizations become capable, as I think they already have shown themselves to be, of giving economic uh, security and other desired benefits, I think they will only expand. And I think we know that I mean none of them are about arms, none of them are about military bases, none of them are about stationing troops, none of them are about engaging in financial plunder. So given all of these things, I think that they will expand, and I think it's good that they should expand. And, you know, whether they expand as a sort of conjuries of uh, of beneficial organizations or whether they expand in ways where, you know, one or two of them emerge at the top, I'm not so concerned. I think on the whole, it's a good development. Yeah, especially since, you know, the U.S. is uh, uh, responding late as usual and insufficiently as usual also to what China has been doing with its Belt and Road Initiative in some of those uh, countries that are, are either already members of BRICS or who they 
hope will join BRICS, but certainly China has been um, engaged in uh, international solidarity through developmental efforts that are mutually beneficial to the countries that they uh, uh, carry out the development in and to China, but not in an exploitative way financially through its Belt and Road Initiative. And the group of seven, the G7, uh, announced at their summit on Sunday that they are going to raise $600 billion in private and public funds over five years to finance infrastructure in developing countries and counter China's older and multi-trillion dollar Belt and Road project. Now, of course, Joe Biden commented about this because, of course, this is a U.S. idea. Uh, Biden said that the U.S. would mobilize $200 billion in grants, federal funds and private investment over five years to support projects in low and middle income countries that help tackle climate change, as well as improve global health, gender equality and digital infrastructure. First of all, he hasn't done any of that here. But Then he went on to say, I want to be clear, this isn't aid or charity. Oh, we know that, Uncle Joe. It's an investment that will deliver returns for everyone, he said, uh, saying that it will allow countries to see the concrete benefits of partnering with democracies. You know, Dr. Desai, I think the rest of the world has seen the concrete benefits of partnering with actual democracies, countries that are not based on military. militaristic uh, imperialism that do not force their hegemony upon them at the point of a gun, uh, uh, do not demand that they accept capitalism as their uh, uh, country's uh, economic model. And I think people see around the world see that China, which has, again, their Belt and Road Initiative is I don't know how many, many more years old than this idea that these folks just cooked up on Sunday. But China has already invested several trillion dollars in infrastructure in developing countries. Once again, Dr. Desai, the U.S. uh, and its allies are entering uh, uh, the race at at, at, at the losing end and throwing in, you know, cheap chips and, and thinking that's a big deal. I, absolutely. I mean, it is such a, a, as you say, cheap tricks. It's such a cheap joke, right? Because first of all, as you rightly say, like the numbers involved are just not comparable to what China is putting in. There are different estimates of what China has done, but they have been at it for longer. And certainly I would say they run into the trillions. And, and China, remember, one of the things people forget is that China's, China is, you know, Chinese people are getting more better off all the time. But the per capita income of China still remains about between a fifth and a fourth of that of the United States. So the United States is a much richer country, but it is able to shell out just $200 billion. That's one thing. Number two, the United States is really, you know, if you look at levels of poverty, lack of access to health care, lack of access to uh, good education, lack of ex- access to good housing, etc. I mean, the problems in the United States are so huge. 
um, nobody is looking at that. And on the contrary, in the United States, all everybody talks about are all sorts of culture wars. And, and this is a function of neoliberalism, by the way. Uh, but anyway, the thing is that the United States is failing its own people, and it is not going to do anything better for the rest of the world. That's the first thing. Secondly, like just in terms of the sheer magnitude of the sums involved. Number two, the United States is offering, like with climate change or digital help or pharmaceutical help or whatever, all these things that they have prioritized prioritized are calculated to create profit opportunities for their big corporations. And I say not ordinary profit opportunities, risk-free profit opportunities for which taxpayers in the poor, hapless countries, whoever it is that happens to accept the U.S. offer, will have to pay. So uh, that's just, it's, it's, it's just, you know, uh, like, as you say, they, they have seen what Americans mean by development, and I don't think there are going to be many takers of this sort of offer. So, so so that's the second thing is that they just want to help their own corporations. And then finally, there is a bigger question. The fiscal constraint, that is to say whether the American government can borrow money. You know, right now the American government can borrow money at a far lower interest rate than it would normally in a proper market because the Federal Reserve has been the essentially monetizing government debt. How long can it continue to do so? What does this mean for the U.S.'s ability to 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 uh, borrow? And if and when the time comes, where is it going to find the money? The rest of the world also is going to fight shyer and shyer of putting money into the U.S. financial system, which keeps up the value of the dollar, which then means that all of that is, you know, the time of the dollar system is also nearing its end. So the dollar system has allowed the Americans to spend so much more than they actually earn, both in terms of current account imbalance, current account deficits, as well as budget deficits. But that time will end. And when that time will end, ends, the American, whoever is ruling America, will come face to face with the inability of Americans to produce and reproduce their own need, for their own needs. And this is going to be a huge problem. So to me, this $600 billion is just a lot of promise. By the way, let me return to a point I made earlier. All of these, you know, right now we are looking at this whole parade of summitry, you know, uh, BRICS, G7, NATO. There will be a G20 meeting in which the Americans are already trying to, you know, in, interfere and tell the Indonesian president not to invite Russia, uh, a suggestion that he has declined, which is good. But the point is that uh, there is all this summitry going on, and what we are seeing in all this summitry is increasingly the opposition between a U.S., the U.S. model of international relations and relations between countries and the Chinese model of the same. And I think that contrast is only set to grow. And clearly, the vast bulk of the countries and the people of the world are not enticed by what the Americans are doing. So um, there was another point I was going to make. Yes, so, so, so there is all this symmetry going on. Yes, but ultimately, you know, if you, if you look at the sanctions that have been imposed, particularly by the Europeans, they're always either very light, like the Europeans continue using gas uh, and, in fact, even oil and so on. They're always put back into the distant future because basically everybody is waiting to see what will happen on the ground, what the Russians achieve on the ground, and when they, when they have declared that 
some, the, uh, the fay accompli, that's when the chips will fall away. All this apparent unity will dissolve. Okay, because all of these people are just saying words in order to, you know, uh, as a holding in a holding pattern. But uh, if the if the Russians have clearly, you know, done what they want to do, and the time for negotiation finally arrives, as Vol- and Volodymyr Zelensky is finally forced to admit, even that he can't, despite his ability to speak out of both sides of his mouth that he can't get away from that, then that will be the moment of truth. That Then you will want to see how everybody aligns. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't think it can be overstated that these summits that we have been talking about over the past few days that have gone on, even even over the past few months with the disastrous summit of the Americas uh, in L.A. and the response to the summit or the alternative to the summit of the Americas, the People's Summit, which was much more popular, much more well attended and uh, revealed a strong uh, a showing of international solidarity to the EU summit in Brussels, the G7 summit in Munich, the NATO summit in Madrid. Imperialism, the U.S.-led and uh, European-backed uh, uh, imperialist order, uh, the hegemony propped up by militarism uh, that the U.S. has used NATO to uh, codify around the world and threaten other countries with subdue them and force austerity and neoliberalism on other countries, that order is falling away. The empire, we are watching the empire fall before our eyes. It may be a slow and measured decline, but declining the empire is. And as we're seeing, right-wing forces continue to coalesce around the world because they are. They are absolutely organizing and always have been. What we are seeing is what continues to give me hope, what we're seeing among the working class and poor and indigenous and peasant farmers around the world. It is the mobilization of those people in the streets in opposition to the continued entrenchment and the the dying throes of the leaders, the gatekeepers of that empire in their countries. We see it in Ecuador. We saw it in protests that were not televised at the NATO summit, at the G, uh, uh, that will, will be at the NATO summit, at the G7 summit, at the EU summit. Thousands of people in the streets protesting the continued existence of the death cult of NATO and U.S. imperialist uh, order that they are tired of living under. People all over the world struggling for a better world. And we are seeing that better world because of that struggle be born right now. So, friends, as we are in this moment where I think it is quite pivotal We should absolutely gain hope from seeing these international global changes happening, seeing this new world be born. But never forget that this is when the empire is the most dangerous and we must continue to struggle. But we're out of time for today. We'll be back tomorrow with a whole new show. Thanks so much for watching. Until then, peace. By any means necessary. 